Hey guys, today we're talking to a professor of economics, Christopher Lingle, and here's a snippet from that interview. Ownership of gold is not dangerous. I mean, people don't need to be put in prison or to be dispossessed of their wealth for owning gold. And in fact, Americans were not legally allowed to, to, to have gold as in bullion form until the 1970s. I think this is just shocking that, that this was not a subject of, of open debate. How can we have in America, the, the home of the free and the land of the brave, that this would ever exist? We're going to be talking about three things in this podcast. We're going to be talking about how you can understand economics, how anyone can understand economics in an easy way. We're going to be talking about the gold standard. Did you actually know that FDR made gold illegal? That's insane. And we're also going to be talking about the Federal Reserve. So sit back and I hope you enjoy. Yeah, I'm Christopher Lingle. I'm a semi-retired professor of economics. My intellectual and spiritual home is in Guatemala at uh, Universidad Francisco Marroquín. I grew up as a mainstream uh, neoclassical Chicago school positivist economist. And then I began to live in the real world. <clears throat> I bumped into public choice economics, then I ran into Hayek, and then I learned economics from Mises. So I don't claim to be anything other than a voluntarist and um, an individualist. So uh, I try to avoid labels. What's the easiest way for someone to understand economics? Well, economics is one aspect of human action, uh, meaning that it's the aspect of life where we engage in trade. So this is what the essence of economics is. It's uh, about finding ways to cooperate with other human beings to make their lives better in order to make our own lives better. And I think that's probably the simplest way. Uh, underpinning that is the, the acceptance of the, the idea that people are living uh, purposive lives. They're trying to achieve some life purpose. Of course, the life purpose is constantly changing. It's being interpreted in new and different ways based upon subjective values. I think that's um, the best way to think of it. With that being said, how do governments mess this up? You know, very often, in some ways, governments are simply uh, benign in the sense, well, the motives may be benign, but the outcomes are malign, malignant. Um, by trying to either set people's life purposes or trying to direct them through social engineering, often with good intentions. Uh, uh, there are any number of politicians throughout history that have decided that uh, uh, anything smoking is bad or vegetarianism is good, uh, like Hitler or in, in particular. When you point out to people who are quite happy to be social engineers, if you say, well, that's exactly the same uh, idea that Hitler had. I mean, he took it a little, a little bit further, maybe. I mean, he wanted to purify all of society through other means, but in fact, he has many of the same ends in mind that he really wanted to you know, just help people make better decisions. Uh, it, it tends to have very bad outcomes. So um, if it's lifestyle choices, it leads to a suggestion that the decision maker has Object, a notion of objective morals or objective morality that needs to be achieved and overlooking the fact that 
morals are not objective and that morals are being challenged and tested and ch changing over time. And um, when it comes to the economic sphere, it becomes even perhaps worse because when you challenge people's morals, they, they, they get their hackles up and they may resist it. But when you begin to try to direct the economy, well, what do I know about economics? And uh, you know, these people are more better trained than I am, more intelligent than I am. So you often will give in to, to these suggestions that when they're beginning to manipulate or try to stimulate the economy. So this is, um, this is where it may become uh, more problematic. So they get away with more in that sense. Economics then could be understood as voluntary peaceful cooperation, man acting to fulfill his own life purposes in a free market. Uh, but then there's problems. So where do the problems actually begin? Where do the conflicts begin here? The essence of the economic problem, actually the essence of life, I believe, and the reason we engage in human action, the reason we do things and make decisions, is this thing that we call scarcity. Now, scarcity means that there's always going to be conflict over what is going to be used, how you use it, and who gets to use it, and what is the outcome of the use of it. Now, there are two ways to solve that conflict that is this, it's the essence of human life. I mean, if you, the best way to understand, understand scarcity is through mortality. Were we not mortal, we would have this discussion a thousand years instead of in the next five minutes because, you know, it wouldn't matter. There's no urgency. But because you wanted to have this discussion, we have to set a time for it because the days are limited or the lives are limited. And so this is what creates an urgency of, of deciding. Now, once you understand that you have these conflicts, you can either resolve these conflicts through violence or through peaceful cooperation. So what happens is that the market provides a way to solve that problem. Uh, Marx saw private property as the problem, and the solution for him was to was, you know, reduce or eliminate private property, and we would have some utopian outcomes eventually. Adam Smith saw private property as the solution, and I think he was right. Uh, that uh, Once we have private property, then we can establish terms of exchange prices and uh, find a way for us to cooperate to solve our mutual interests in fulfilling our life purposes. So to mitigate the problem of scarcity, you do it through private property and, and uh, prices. Uh, but it's worthwhile here to unpack the non-aggression principle and how it applies. So could you talk a little bit about that? Not, the non-aggression principle is basically don't f with people and don't steal their things. Um, life in a civilized society has several sensible components. One of them is you keep your promises. So within a market exchange uh, process, that means you you um, you fulfill contracts. Uh, you don't. Uh, engage in violence against your neighbors. Um, that's the, the non-aggression problem. But in a, in a sense, the uh, keeping your promises, and, and, and the third one is not engaging in fraud, which is really, all of these come down to the same. I mean, fraud is, is uh, really no better than theft. It's just theft without the, the threat of violence. 
Um, um, so these are all woven together in a sense if, if we think about it. Um, so the non-aggression principle suggests that if we want to improve our lives, it's better to cooperate than to depend on violence. One of the things people love talking about is the Federal Reserve or the Reserve Bank here in Australia. What are some of the problems created by the Fed or central banking in general? It's interesting. If you look back at the history of the United States and the political history of the United States in the 19th century, there were two really dominant issues that were either in the foreground or the background. And one of them was, must we have a central bank? And they had two, and they purposely decided to let their uh, um, to let them uh, expire. Uh, and we we never had a we don't have a central bank now. We have a Federal Reserve system, which was a, a clever way of using or distracting people from what they were trying to impose. So I think if they'd called it a central bank, it would have been much harder for them to smuggle it in. Um, the other one was, should we have a standing army? Uh, and the idea was that no, because one of the grievances against the king and what that motivated the revolution, American Revolution was that you know, the, the presence of this standing army threatened you know, the, 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 the preservation of human liberty. And um, so until World War I, the answer was always no, we don't need a standing army. Uh, now we have both a central bank, called by a different name, and a standing army. Now one is necessary to support the other. Uh, the central banks, if you look at their history, were invented as a way of promoting the, the interests of the monarchy. Bank of Sweden was one of the, the first, and then eventually the Bank of England. So. Why did they support the monarchy? Well, monarchies uh, had uh, either imperialism on their mind, an evil, or wars, another evil. So central banks have always done that. And now, unfortunately, in the United States, uh, the, the central bank is the primary uh, aspect of the capacity of the United States to have wars all over, imperialist wars all over the world. The artificially low interest rates are what allows the U.S. government to run massive deficits in order to finance these imperialistic wars of aggression and wherever these are. So if you want to get rid of these wars of aggression, <laughs> the way to start would be to get rid of the central bank. Whenever we talk about the Federal Reserve, it almost brings with it a connotation of uh, conspiracy theory with it. So how do we actually ground this in reality? I think what we have to do, it, it's a much better thing instead of engaging in conspiracy ideas that, that, that distract us. It's just look at how to fix the problem. And fixing the problem does require some, some thoughtful ideas. I mean, any number of things, uh, going back to private banking, that is deregulating uh, private banks and allowing private banks to issue competing currencies or, or competing corporations. I mean, Apple, uh, being concerned with its uh, reputation, could issue a currency and it would be much more cautious about preserving the, the value of, it, of a currency as a way of protecting its brand and reputation than governments are. I mean, if, if Apple or a bank uh, issued a, a, a depreciating currency, 
they would be punished for it. When governments issue a uh, depreciating currency, they seem to be rewarded for it by certain interest groups. And um, so private banking would be one way, a restoration of a commodity standard through, say, gold standard. Uh, the problem is we don't have a monetary system any longer. We have a global system of debt issuance. The paper currencies uh, are not money, they're debt. And there's no redemption, there's no, there's only expansion. There's a, a, with, with a commodity standard, you could always redeem money for gold. Gold was money, money was gold. And now you redeem paper currency for more paper currency. There's no redemption. So that means there's no constraints. So we have an infinitely elastic supply of paper currency. With a commodity standard, you have a finite capacity to expand the money supply. Now, if, if men were angels and if central bankers were uh, without private interests of their own, uh, without um, uh, the, the human frailties that, uh, that we all have, it might be okay to have a, a central bank and with a monopoly over the issuance of a fiat currency, um, but we don't have men as angels. A central bank, unfortunately, Milton Friedman had a deep and abiding respect for central bankers, and that was a historical thing. But he didn't realize that the reason they were respectable is that they were constrained by the commodity standard. So he thought you could trust them. Because historically, they, they were, you know, and he studied under people who became central bankers. He had high regards for them as individuals. But I think he was, you know, misled, in a sense, by his own experiences. Uh, he grew up under a world where a gold standard was very recent, or a gold exchange standard, which was a modification of the classic gold standard, still existed. So there were these constraints. And uh, so he was quite uh, enthusiastic about supporting the, the, uh, the end of a gold, standard, gold exchange standard. And, and he believed that, uh, wrongly I, I think in the end, that, uh, that, that uh, flexible prices for everything, including uh, monetary exchanges, was, was a good thing. I think he was wrong in that regard. Flexible prices and all other things is a good thing, but those flexible prices are uh, relative prices, one price against another price, whereas the, the price of money uh, needs some sort of anchor, a, a standard, uh, or a restraint on its perpetual interest, uh, expansion. From time to time when I'm talking to people about war, sometimes they'll, they'll try and argue that war is actually good for the economy. They'll say, you know, World War II pulled the economy out of the Great Depression. So why is this idea mistaken? Well, you know, one of the ways to try to explain to people the fallacy of the idea that war can be good for an economy uh, is to use Friedrich Bastiat's uh, broken window fallacy, which brings it down to a, um, a more human level in the sense that the idea was that, well, if you wanted to make a, a community better off, then break all the windows in all the homes and then this will create jobs for 
the, uh, the window manufacturer and the pe people that, um, that uh, replace the windows. But in fact, what you've done is you've destroyed wealth. I mean, the destruction of wealth cannot be the basis of improving the, 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 the standing or the welfare of a community. Now, the tragedy is that very intelligent and, and very, very well-educated uh, people promote this myth. A, a fairly recent example of this is that Paul Krugman, after the 9-11 destruction, of, this massive destruction of wealth, never mind the destruction of human lives, uh, he said, well, this will probably be good for the New York uh, economy. I mean, this, this is a monstrous argument because it, it, it distracts people. It's kind of like, well, you know, wars are kind of bad, but you know, look at what we get from them. What, what you get from them is slavery through conscription. You got wealth destruction through, you know, destroying cities and, and the, the diversion of, of, of scarce resources into armaments that are blown up. And I mean, this is monstrous when it comes to war. The broken window, window fallacy is one of the most persistent myths uh, I myself was uh, indoctrinated, perhaps. I, I simply didn't question it. It was, what, it was the sort of conventional wisdom. Uh, Keynesian economics, in a sense, though, is an, in, it's an institutionalized logic that supports this monstrous uh, idea about war in particular, because you know the idea that Keynes would, you could uh, bury 10-pound notes and then pay people to pick them up. It's, uh, to, to dig them up is, is the, the same logic, but as I say, that, that logic supports this monstrous decision that destroying people's lives, destroying capital, is actually good for an economy. It, it's surprising to me that even I was so foolish to accept it on face value. When FDR was president, he actually made it illegal for citizens to own gold. Which, looking back, that that's crazy to us, uh, and it should have been crazy at the time. Could you talk? A little bit about this. Roosevelt made the ownership of gold criminal uh, and required that all gold stocks held by individuals be redeemed. Didn't nationalize them, didn't confiscate them, but he simply required redemption at the current exchange rate or uh, price. And once that was done, of course, they devalued uh, the, the value of the dollar against gold, which meant that he confiscated, in a sense, the real wealth of those individuals that were compelled to give up the, the stocks of gold. Now, this was never taught in schools as something that was an abomination. Uh, that, uh, and, and I didn't learn this myself until after I had a PhD in economics. And I, I'm, I'm still in a state of shock that this was never discussed and, and that uh, Roosevelt was not uh, condemned as a moral criminal for having done this. I mean, ownership of gold is not dangerous. I mean, people don't need to be put in prison or to be dispossessed of their wealth for owning gold. And in fact, Americans were not legally allowed to, to, to have gold as in bullion form until the 1970s. Again, this is just shocking that, that this was not a subject of, of open debate. How can we have in America, the, the home of the free and the land of the brave, that this would ever exist. So people are still, I'm, I'm not surprised that, uh, that people who are well-educated still don't know this. Now, that's an interesting fact, and maybe it's an important fact, but I, I think we need 
and, and this is really a, an outcome of the fact that we don't teach the importance of liberty in schools. We teach the importance of democracy, which is supposedly a means to an end. And the end was always human liberty. Democracy was only a mechanism, but we, we treat it as though it's the, 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 what, what we should aim for. Uh, there, I, I think it was Woodrow, I'm a little bit cloudy this morning, but I'll, I'll stick my neck out. Woodrow Wilson once said that we need to make the world safe for democracy. I think we need to make democracy safe for the world. Democracy, representative democracy, represents one of the greatest dangers to human liberty that we have today in the sense that people are naively embracing it. Um, representative democracy has become a game to redistribute wealth and income. Every legislative act today is a creation of subsidies and privileges which violate this fundamental idea of the rule of law, which is the absence of privilege. The rule of law was a reaction to the rule of monarchies being, being able to have arbitrary control over one's lives and one's incomes. And we fought revolutions, we chopped the heads off of kings uh, in order to implement this rule of law. And that was meant to be our lodestone, that was our guiding uh, concept. Absence of privileges, that, that the rich treated the same as the poor, the strong the same as the weak. But in fact, what's happened in representative democracy is that, well, we're deciding that we should apply um, privileges to people. We're going to give students subsidy. Well, that's a privilege. That was never meant to be. The under the sort of modern experiments of democracy, taxation was meant, not meant to be a redistributive tool. It was meant to be a, a way to provide collective consumption goods, or what economists call public goods. So what happened is that representative democracy was a shift from the divine right of kings to the divine right of democracy. And in the end, we're almost in the same boat without realizing it, uh, that uh, by believing that democracy was the, the god that we needed to worship instead of liberty and the protection of human liberty, we've, we've found ourselves in very problematic situations. So this allows Hugo Chavez to become president for life using democracy. And, and he had the majority support of the people to do so. But this squandered the, the possibility of those human beings to have human liberty. And this was a tragic disaster. And I blame the, the educational process for this to a considerable degree. I was raised in America in the immediate post-war era in the 1950s in the United States where we had good reason to believe that the American government did good things and that we did the right things, that, um, you know, that we helped bring not democracy but liberty to, to places that had been taken over by colonialism. So Hitler was colonized, and this was the last attempt, unless you believe in, that Putin is doing that, he's trying to colonize eastern Ukraine and South Ossetia and Abkhazia, but Hitler was the last big attempt to colonize uh, Europe, and the Japanese were colonizing. So that World War II was a war against imperialism, and that 
if there's such a thing as a just war, that may well be. I'm not sure that the United States had to be involved, but we were. And it got, in any case, there were good results. So it was easy to say, well, but that was democracy. That's what we thought. And so with that, we went to sleep, we went on autopilot, and let representative democracy become degraded into this redistributive game. And alas, that's where we are today. So we have to have this rediscovery of the importance of the rule of law, I believe. And uh, I think that's where the debate needs to be, to, to, to point out to people that, oh, look, subsidies are privileges. And if, if, you know, there's a lot of debate in the United States about white privilege. Well, it's not just white privilege. It's privilege granted through a legislative process. That's what's dangerous. Uh, there's no white privilege that's upheld by legislative procedures. I think mean, this is a, an imaginary concept uh, in the sense that, and it's not really as dangerous in the sense that uh, what, what's, what's dangerous is political power. Uh, political power developed through this issuance of privileges through legislative diktat. This is what's dangerous, and this is what we need to teach people. Could you expand on that a little bit, the, the skepticism we should have of political power? What's happening at the moment is that there's a, there's a pretense that inequalities of wealth and income are, number one, destabilizing in terms of political continuity and that they could possibly lead to a decrease in economic growth. Both of these are wrong, both in terms of history and in theory. In fact, there's no theory behind either of those. The, the great revolutions were not fought over imbalances of income and wealth. They were fought over the arbitrary use of political power, the arbitrary power in the hands of monarchy. We weren't angry with them that they were rich. We were angry that they, they, they could take away our lives and our property just based upon their own whims. So there's no historical evidence. Every great revolution. Now, it, it may be that, that the, 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 the people manning the barricades in Paris uh, were upset about being poor, but the reason they were poor is because of that imbalance of power. So even if their perceptions were that it was a, an income differential, uh, the, the, the fundamental problem was the, the power disparities. Um, and there's no evidence that income inequalities necessarily lead to slower economic growth. So if, if we put that off the table, then the seductive promises of the, 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 the progressives or social democrats or socialists that are trying to take power, uh, you take away some of the allure of their arguments, but you've got to, you've got to go. I mean, I, I really think this is one of the big debates that, that, um, that free market economists are not being very effective at. Um, the other one, of course, is, is using climate change as a way of expanding political power. And, and that one is engaged at a fairly uh, uh, aggressive level, and I think that's another one. But resist all these siren songs for expanding political power and go after those arguments that are, are insisting that political power is the solution to those problems. You know, I think both of them are, are um, I think what we find now is that social democracy is solutions looking for problems. 
And uh, those, you know, so they say, oh, climate change, give us more power, we'll fix it. Uh, income inequality, give us more power, and we'll fix it. So we, we have to realize that this is the game. Uh, and because representative democracy has degrade, become degraded to the point where it's a redistributive game. So we need to rediscover the, the, why we need democracy. We need democracy to promote and protect human liberty and personal dignity. So guys, I really hope you enjoyed that. And if you want more of Chris Lingle, you can go to anotherwaymovie.com where uh, all of these concepts are talked about along with examples and graphics and you can really solidify your knowledge on economic issues. So I encourage you to go to anotherwaymovie.com to see more. Make sure you click subscribe, click follow, share it with your friends or your enemies if you didn't like it. And I'll see you next time.